Hey everybody, welcome to the official Screenwriting Podcast number 19. I'm Adam Levenberg, and this week I have a bunch of random pieces of advice, little tidbits to talk about, so I'll just jump into it. I do have my first new piece of advice in a while, and I'll preface it with a quick story, which is that when I was in film school at USC, I took a class on editing, and the teacher wanted to play a little bit of a trick on us. So he gave us the assignment of watching five minutes of a movie and then counting up the amount of edits that were in those five minutes. And it's a nearly impossible task to do for a couple of reasons, but the biggest reason is that you eventually stop counting. You get sucked into whatever it is you're watching. The edits become seamless. You're not paying attention to them anymore. You're paying attention to the story. And, of course, then you can't remember when you stopped counting, so then you have to go all the way back to the beginning, and the process usually repeats itself. It's really, really hard to do. And I have found a corollary to that, which is that if you are studying a movie, and remember, please please do this, if you're studying a movie, that requires some data collection. That requires a laptop on your lap. It requires a timer involved where you can see how many minutes have passed. Um, on the DVD or the video file that you're looking at. It is not about sitting there staring at the TV for two hours with a title that's similar to something you're thinking of writing, going, hmm, what can I take away from that? You are constantly supposed to be taking notes on what's going on and how the film functions. But in any case, what I have found is when doing this, because over the last week, I've had to do this a couple of times where I'm working with a director and he references something and we're talking about, well, how does the beginning of the second act or the first half of the second act, how's that supposed to work? I don't know. Why don't we take a look at, say, Final Destination and see how it worked there and what events occur and what are the character situations and how they move forward. And what I have found is that it is a thousand times easier to do this if you don't fall into the movie. But how do you prevent yourself from falling into the movie? Meaning where you just end up kind of getting entertained by it and you stop analyzing what's going on. The best way to do that is to have a video file of it. Um, DVDs can also do this and play it with sound at two to three times its normal speed. And that way, sometimes you'll have to slow it down or return it to normal speed so you can catch some dialogue if you missed it. But you absolutely can listen to the dialogue playing at two to three times normal speed, follow what's going on, and take notes. It cuts the amount of time that you have to put into each movie down also, because I found that that's a thing where it's like, I mean to look at a film, and then it's just, I don't have that two hours at the end of my night to dedicate to watching the whole thing. Hey, that's okay now, because now I can watch that movie in 30 minutes if I need to. So I think that that's something where um, you can cover a lot more ground, a lot more territory, and it's just a lot more effective. It's kind of like when they say taking notes, uh, you end if you're taking notes on something, it you end up retaining two to three times as much material. I'm going to suggest that you can study in terms of screenwriting a film two to three times more effectively just by speeding it up, just by no longer being a casual viewer or you're taking it at a totally different speed and you're analyzing it as opposed to potentially falling into it and absorbing it and being entertained by it, which is not what you're supposed to be doing. So that is a helpful piece of advice. A couple fun things this week to talk about. Fox Studios has let Daredevil go back to Marvel. I applaud Fox. This is the ballsiest move I have seen and it makes so much sense, but it goes against the way that studios have been operating and congratulations to them for doing this because 
You know, the property Daredevil didn't work as a feature film. I've never seen it, so I'm not I'm not speaking about the film itself, but it wasn't a it wasn't a huge hit. Um and it wasn't something where I believe it made about a hundred million dollars, but it probably cost that to produce and market. And there wasn't a huge appetite for a sequel. They ended up doing Electra, which was a spin-off with Jennifer Garner. But you know, I remember um I was meeting with the company at the time and they were talking about how, you know, it was done for a price. It was based on Daredevil having done really well on home video and Electra was done at a really reasonable budget uh, so that it would essentially recoup just based on DVD alone. But the thing about um, this move by Fox is that they are acting against the way that the studios have been operating over the last couple of years. Because when people say, well, why is there a new Spider-Man two years after the Spider-Man 3 or three years after Spider-Man uh, Spider 3? Uh, why are they rebooting it so quickly and going back to an origin story? And Man of Steel, you know, is coming out this summer. It's been six years since the last Superman reboot. Why are they doing this? There's contractual reasons for that, which is that these contracts were made a long time ago where Marvel and, and DC and other uh, comic book companies would license out properties at fractions. Uh, it's actually a totally different scenario than the way that it works today, where Marvel still controls everything uh, in their universe, although Marvel, of course, has been sucked up by Disney. But... I think that the, uh, the the specific element that is so different here is that usually studios just hang on to things. They don't want something to get away from them and then be another hit at another studio. But Fox was right. You know, they were they've been developing Daredevil as a project with Joe Carnahan, who's the writer director of Narc. He did the amazing, amazingly fun uh, Smoke and Aces. And, you know, he's a really talented guy. But for whatever reason, I, I don't know the details of it. I don't know if Joe Carnahan walked away, if Fox wasn't interested in his take. I don't know. What I do know is that they said, we, we're just not, we don't want to make a movie this summer based on Daredevil. We don't want to invest $100 million just so that somebody else doesn't go and make money off this thing. We had our shot with it. We're moving on. Fox has more than enough properties to exploit, more than enough scripts sitting around, more than enough reboots that they could possibly do. They don't have to do Daredevil the reboot in 2013. But the reason, of course, I, I believe I just said this, but I'll, I'll clarify again, is because um, they have to make a movie based on the initial contract when they acquired the rights, which might have been in the 80s or 70s or, you know, um, they have to make a movie every X amount of years. And if they don't, then those rights revert back. That's why we get a Spider-Man reboot after three years. That's why Man of Steel is occurring this summer. And, you know, it's, it's known, it was written about when Man of Steel was happening. The reason that they hired Zack Snyder to do Man of Steel was because he could do it quickly. Because he could deliver a film that the studio thought there's a very good chance that we'll be satisfied with. Um, it was it was a decision, you know, made out of necessity. Um, and and of course, you know, he's made several films with them that have been successful. But, you know, it was a decision that was made sort of on the fly, like this movie had to be, where they said, we can't spend two, three years getting it right. And I'm sure they look back at the last process of the last Superman, where they spent a decade, where, you know, Nicolas Cage was going to play it for a minute and a half, and a Tim Burton version, and then Kevin Smith wrote a draft, and then suddenly you have, you know, I'm sure J.J. Abrams did a draft of Superman at some point, and you have 58 writers, each coming in every couple of years, writing a new Superman, and, you know, eventually we ended up with the Brian Singer version, which I haven't gotten all the way through. You know, it's not terrible. It's just not, it didn't blow anybody's socks off. So I think that, um, you know, this is sort of a change where studios are at least being realistic about what they might make. 
And even if Disney goes ahead and, you know, Daredevil is reincorporated into the Marvel Universe and they kind of build him up as a character in other films uh, with other, you know, comic book characters sort of at the head of it and then allow him to have his own spinoff, essentially, where they've introduced this character, gotten him going uh, and building sort of a fan base for him, then great, you know, God forbid that somebody else does something which Fox Studios can't do. So I think it's it's really good that, you know, they're sort of understanding that reality. Um, all right, moving on. Will Smith has moved on to Requa and Fakara's Project Focus. You know, Requa and Fakara are some of the greatest writers and now directors out there. They're a writing team who wrote Bad Santa and Cats and Dogs, the family-friendly Cats and Dogs and the incredibly filthy Bad Santa, complete range of talent. Um, and they wrote and directed I Love You, Philip Morris, and they also did, they directed Crazy Stupid Love. I would presume that they did some writing on it as well. Um, and, you know, Ben Affleck dropped out of this project to star, write, and direct Dennis Lehane's Live By Night, which incidentally, if you want the coverage on Live By Night that I wrote when it was an available book, uh, please check it out at officialscreenwriting.com, where I talk about some of the issues that they were going to have to deal with when they adapt this project. Also, if you are interested, you know, again, people love Argo. Argo is a great film. And if you have not seen uh, Ben Affleck's first film that he uh, wrote, oh my God, is it possible that I'm forgetting the title of this film? I, I wouldn't even, wow. It wasn't Mystic River, which was another Dennis Lehane movie. Um, it wasn't Shutter Island. Oh my gosh, it will come back to me as I'm talking. All right, so that is, it, it is a, this is unbelievable. I'm going to have to look it up right now because the idea that I, I'm blanking on the title of this film. Um, if you loved Argo, you have got to see, I'm I'm forgetting it. And I'm not going to start over this podcast. All right. Um, stars Casey Affleck, Morgan Freeman, Amy Ryan. And I'm still blanking on the title of this, uh, of the, great. Now I have to scroll through all of the Netflix. Uh, acting credits, Gone Baby Gone is the title of the film. It's an amazing movie. And if you haven't seen it, it really uh, has the balls to go somewhere with an ending that is not incredibly satisfying on any other level than it completely works. But it has the balls to sort of, not provide the audience with an easy, happy ending. And it puts the hero into a position where he has to make an incredibly difficult, ugly decision um, and do what's right. And and really sort of, it's, it's the crossroad of morals versus ethics versus, you know, um, versus, oh boy, I don't, I don't know how to talk about that. Um, I think Crossroads of Morals versus Ethics uh, is, is a good way to describe it. Um, it's about a detective who is on the trail of a kidnapped little girl and what ended up happening to her and the decision he has to make as to whether or not to return her to her family is a really interesting moral quandary that he deals with. So I really like that movie. And I think you will, too. And, of course, the writer-director of it has gone on to direct Argo. And, and it also happens to be Ben Affleck. Um, all right, so some quick fun facts that I came across this week. Giorgio Moroder, who is the king of disco. For those of you who've seen the movie Scarface, he did the score. 
and he also wrote pretty much all the big Donna Summer songs that people know. He tried to get Sylvester Stallone and Bob Dylan to do a duet together. It didn't happen, but I, could you imagine like a disco duet between Sylvester Stallone and Bob Dylan? I know that has nothing to do with screenwriting, but I just love the idea of that. Also, I read this week that Emma Thompson auditioned for the Sharon Stone role in Basic Instinct. Just try to wrap your head around if that had gone a different way, if she had gotten that part. Um, I, you know, wow. That's, it's, it's just, uh, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Okay. Um, really interesting article in, uh, go into the story, which is now the website, the official website of the blacklist. It is one of the great resources on the internet for screenwriters. You should be checking it once, twice, three times a week. Uh, there's just great articles and there's also some really good crowdsourcing. You know, one of the things that I wanted to do with this podcast was crowdsource information. And I think that Go Into the Story does it really, really effectively where he'll talk about a certain type of film or a certain technique or a certain whatever. And then people can say, oh, well, there's a version of that in this film and that film and the other film, because that's really uh, how you move this kind of uh, line of inquiry or education forward. There is very little out there. There have maybe been like 200 books written on screenwriting. Mine's one of them, the Starter Screenplay, available at Amazon.com for download, or you can buy it from me directly at thestarterscreenplay.com, and I'll personally autograph it to you with free shipping. How do you like how I work that plug-in? Okay, so there's this great article, and it totally, I can't say for sure that it was ripped off from my book, um, but, you know, there's, I, I have a whole section on, and you know what, maybe it's not. Because the, the, the article is uh, from Stephanie Palmer, and she was a former executive who now does screenwriting consulting. And she talks about in this article how the, the biggest lie is often uh, the response to screenplays. And that, you know, here, here let me just read this. Sometimes uh, these compliments... Uh, uh, these compliments, when you hear a version of yes, are often lies, and what's actually being said is no. So this is, in my book, I talk about Hollywood doesn't like to pass, they just don't call back, and, you know, the, a pass by any other name, where I talk about the four or five ways that people pass on material um, that sometimes writers don't realize they're being passed on, or they believe what's being said. And, of course, those are, this is not for us at this time which is meaningless unless you're operating on the assumption that time travel devices are on the horizon. Um, our slate is full. We have a similar project at our company or around town. This project isn't commercial enough for us. Um, and, you know, I talk about those things. Uh, there's a couple additional things that are mentioned in this article. Uh, so you should check that out. Oh, the examples of no are this has a lot of potential. This is a great piece of writing dot 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 i love the main characters dot 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 this is hilarious dot 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 or we love this script dot 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 and you know the, some of these things as she writes may be true but don't take them at face value most of the time all of these compliments translate to you seem like a nice person and i don't see any reason to offend you um oh here's some of the things that she that she puts in this isn't the right fit for us we are over budget we would like to uh uh, but this is this movie would be too expensive or we have another project that's too similar and she says these all mean this script isn't good enough yet and that no equals compliment plus excuse 
Um, this is how people in Hollywood are trained to to deal with things. And maybe it goes back to, you know, one of the agencies was was founded on a lot of principles that were, I believe, borrowed from the way the Japanese business operates, which is its own, you know, world and its own culture. And, you know, one of the things is that you don't want to offend people. So you pass with kindness. You pass um, by either not responding or by essentially blowing smoke up somebody's ass by making them feel good about what they did because otherwise you're invested. You know, to say to somebody there's problems with your script demands if you respect that person or if you want that person to respect you that you then have to take the time to explain why you didn't like it. And then if those per that person goes back and makes changes, then you're often obligated to read the script again that you didn't like in the first place. And by the way, being honest and having to give notes means you have to get to the end because if you're in the business of finding new projects and you can't be motivated to get to the end of this script, um, you know, a lot of young executives or readers will sometimes skip to the end of the script. That's not something that you can do if you're, say, doing coverage on a project. That's an easy way to get fired <laughs> if you miss something. Um, but, you know, if your job is as, as an executive, your time is valuable and you can't read everything under the sun. And if a script is a pass after page 20 or page 30 and you don't see a piece of business there, why would you ever continue? But remember, to, if you were to talking to that writer, which often happens because you get personal relationships with writers, they often slip you material. Um, you ha then have an obligation to help them with it. And remember, you know, if I'm taking time with the script, that's like two days of my life. I don't have two days of my life if I'm not being paid or if I have a full-time job that requires me to be doing meetings in and out and evaluating other projects. Um, so sometimes, you know, what, what executives do is they'll give a couple of off-the-cuff thoughts. But again, it's so much easier to, to just compliment the hell out of the material and give an excuse. And somebody says that this, you know, has something to do with the moral lack of compass or lack of a moral compass in Hollywood. I, I don't. I mean, it's just the reality that people will be pissed off if you don't get there. Uh, if you're not, if, if, if you're honest about, you know, could you imagine if somebody said, I stopped reading this after 10 pages or 20 pages or 30 pages? I don't understand the point of this. I mean, that's a that's a really difficult thing for a writer to swallow, especially one who thinks that they're professional. And again, it's not your job if you're an executive to get in the face of some writer and be honest because then they're just going to dislike you for it. And then they might not send their next project. And by virtue of the fact that they're professionals, you know, what if the person doesn't sell that script, learns from their mistakes, somebody else gives them the notes that they need and they become a better writer and they deliver the next project and they fucking hit it out of the park. You don't want to have offended that writer, offended the writer's agent. Um, why would you do that if, because then that person's gonna make a mental note that they don't, you don't like their writing. And there's no reason for that. There's no reason that an executive would sacrifice that, that potential future uh, relationship or, or piece of business over a script pass, which you're doing every day, day in, day out. So I found that to be an interesting article. Uh, it's, again, it's called The Lie Most Frequently Told in Hollywood. And I have another, uh, my own take on that in my book. Uh, so finally this week, I will talk about, I want to talk about um, reversals. Oh yeah, real quickly, I want, I want to also mention, um, b before I get to reversals, that on Netflix, 
there's a cool film. If you're a fan of the movie Legend, you know who you are. This is a Ridley Scott movie starring Tom Cruise. It was a fantasy film that, you know, between that and Willow, there was a, which was directed by Ron Howard in the 80s, there was sort of the understanding at that period in time that fantasy didn't work. And Hollywood didn't touch it after that. And I think that's because both Legend and Willow are well-made films by top directors. You know, whether or not you care for it or not is sort of beside the point. They're well-made projects with, with a lot of imagination, a lot of heart. And the, you know, starring Tom Cruise. Starring Tom Cruise, directed by Ridley Scott. And the movie what Legend was a failure, um, as was Willow to some extent. So... You know, the, the the reason I'm bringing this up is because if you're a fan of Legend, you can see where a lot of the visuals came from. And that's from a film called Dynebelungen from, I believe, 1924. It was a film or film series directed by Fritz Lang, who went on to direct the groundbreaking Metropolis. Um, and, you know, I, I don't recommend... Fuck, if you want to watch it from beginning to end, be my guest. I think this is the kind of thing where if you want to drop in on Netflix Instant, watch three to four minutes of it. If you're a Legend fan, you can see where a lot of the visuals were referenced from. How Ridley Scott sort of brought color to a world that was largely uh, created in this film fantasy. And Dynebelungen was one of the first film fantasies, I believe, where it it was essentially sort of getting into a, I, I guess, a German fairy tale world. So in any case, um, I don't remember too much of it. I took an entire class on Fritz Lang, uh, but it was you know during senior year of college, and I wasn't really paying that much attention by then. Um, so that is streaming on Netflix Instant, either the original film or the sequel, uh, directed by Fritz Lang, one of the first uh, first uh, fantasy films ever, and it provides a lot of the visual inspiration for what Ridley Scott did with Legend. Okay, moving on. I want to talk about reversals. This is going to be quick. And that is that you want characters, especially supporting characters, to be the opposite of what you'd expect. Um, I'll, I'll try to talk about this in a way that doesn't give anything away, but I recently uh, read a script which was about a teen superhero vigilante. And there's a scene where Mom finds out. And, you know, mom is sort of depicted as overly cautious. You know, this kid's sneaking around. He's sneaking out of the house to do this because he knows that his parents would flip out. And I don't want to talk about what choices the writer made. But the most interesting thing, almost the only place you can go with this when mom discovers it. And first of all, when mom discovers it, it has to be by accident. It has to be like she discovers him using his powers where he doesn't realize he's being watched. And, you know, there's this really funny moment where uh, mom gets the, you know, just shocked by what's going on. And you, you'd get a good laugh from an audience over that. But once mom settles in and finds out what her kid's up to, I almost feel like the only way to, you know, you'd expect her to be against it. You'd expect her to be overly cautious because they've set that up. And that's the, you always have to look at, well, what's the opposite of that? What's the opposite of what we'd expect? And I would say, well, the opposite here, especially if we're going to continue having, you know, if this is not happening at the end of the story, but, you know, this story and the vigilante element has to continue, is that mom should be supportive of it, surprisingly, because that would be the opposite of what we'd expect. That would be the reversal. And there's a couple ways you can do this. Um, 
Also, there's a reversal in the movie The Lost Boys. This is the first one that popped into my head where I started thinking back. Actually, there were two, the first one that popped into my head was The Peaceful Warrior with um, Nick Nolte, and it was written and directed, I think, by Victor Salva. And this actually hits on something that I believe in a book by Linda Seeger about characters. I, I, I don't know if it was taken directly from this book, but sometimes these things, you never know, you know whether or not the writer read about this at some point where she she talks about in a writing exercise what are the qualities of somebody you think of working at a gas station if some character works at a gas station at this low skill somewhat menial job um where you're also getting dirty you know it's it's a it's not a clean job it's it's about as blue collar as you get um and it's it's menial it's a minimum wage gig uh what what are the qualities of that person and that was a question asked in this book. And in the movie, The Peaceful Warrior, uh, Nick Nolte plays that character, and he's fucking Mr. Miyagi. He is Mr. Miyagi, essentially. He is teaching this guy all sorts of stuff, blowing his mind with the, this, this fountain of information. He is the guru, the source of an amazing breakthrough in, the, in our hero's life. Um, but that's not what we'd expect from somebody working at a gas station. And in the movie The Lost Boys, you know, you have this supporting character, Grandpa. The Lost Boys, by the way, wow, I'm going to have to describe what it is. It's a great Joel Schumacher teen movie about Corey Haim moves to a beachfront uh, town where vampires are running around killing people at night. The lead vampire played by Kiefer Sutherland. And his brother ends up getting bitten by a vampire and ends up changing over and his mom starts dating uh, a new guy who he believes is the lead vampire, uh, Corey Haim. And it's, it's a fun teen movie. But you have, like, senile grandpa running around throughout the entire movie. He's just, like, hanging out at the house. I think it's like the parents divorced and mom moved back in with her dad, who's losing his marbles. He virtually is not a character. He just walks around mumbling the whole movie. And at the end of the movie, of course, grandpa crashes through the the uh the wall in his jeep and he kills a vampire and you know it's sort of the climax of the film and then he says you know the one thing i don't like about this town the damn vampires um and he knew about the vampires all along and and had the balls to you know throw down he had the balls to get in his car and drive through a wall in order to save his family which is the opposite of what we'd expect from a character who is relatively senile and i i sort of that's the first thing that popped into my head i'm sure i just started thinking about that 30 minutes ago i'm sure as soon as i stop recording i will figure out some more but i think that the um we can break it down in two ways how do you create a reversal um here's the categories i think you can give them qualities um or skills you give them a skill or you give them a differing opinion. So, for example, um, we often would, ex again, with mom, with the superhero vigilante teenage son, we'd expect her opinion to be that my kid's got to stop doing this. The reversal is, no, she thinks it's cool or she's on board, you know, as long as he takes care of himself. Maybe she helps him. Maybe she sews him a new costume. Maybe she, you know, sews some pads into the costume or some, you know, some pads with something on it so that, you know, if he gets stabbed, you know, like it has protective armor, whatever it is. Mom is helping the cause. Uh, so that's a difference of opinion. 
And that is fun because it seems to be the opposite opinion that we'd expect of a mom or a generic mom. And then there's qualities or skills that you can provide to your character, uh, your supporting characters, something where they have an ability that we don't know that they have. I mean, Grandpa in The Lost Boys, we didn't even think that he had his, his marbles. We didn't think that he had his sanity or his ability to look at the world or reality in a proper way uh, because we thought he was losing it. And here it is that, no, he's still capable of crashing through the wall in his Jeep and killing the vampire who's about to kill our hero. So, um, and then he utters the only line in the entire movie that's, <laughs> I, I think, uh, where, you know, he seems to be completely lucid. And he says, the one damn thing about, the one thing about living in Santa Carla, I could never stomach all the damn vampires. Um, so that's how you break it down. Either you give them a skill that we wouldn't expect them to have a quality we wouldn't expect them to have, or a perspective slash opinion that we wouldn't expect them to have. All right, that's all for today. Again, my screenwriting class is going to start up again soon at the Director's Playhouse uh, in West L.A., Saturday mornings. You can sign up for that. It's a six-week course. I think it's pretty awesome. Uh, go to directorsplayhouse.com or email me. My book's available at thestarterscreenplay.com or download it for your Kindle at Amazon. And you can hire me to read your script. $299. bucks. i am keeping it going. Uh, it's a promotion, and I will read your script, take notes on it. I will do notations so you can read what I'm thinking as I read through it. Then I do a set of notes. Then we talk about all that stuff. You read over everything that I had to write, and then we talk on the phone, unlimited period of time. Uh, or you can hire me, 99 bucks, one hour concept consultation. That's all for this week. I'll be back with something new next week. Take care.